And now please put your hands together for a, a dear friend of mine and the most fantastic Cornish writer, I couldn't think of a nicer writer to end with, Philip Marsden. Good. Thank you, Patrick. It's the last, last gig for him, for all of us, I think. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to talk today about a, um, a sea journey and a, and a boat. The journey is, um, is a journey up the, the west coast of, from Cornwall, up the west coast of, um, of, of Ireland and up to Scotland, up the, the coasts of Munster and Connaught and, and, and Ulster, up into the the depths of the, the, the Western Isles of, of, of the Scottish coast. Um, unfortunately, um, for logistical reasons, I wasn't actually able to bring the boat with me today. Okay. So um, in its place, I will just hang out some, some flags, which were, which were from, from the actual journey. They, they, they all accompanied me on the journey. So we've got three flags. Okay, so the first is the, the Red Ensign, which... Um, Convention has you should you should hang from your stern. There are one or two places in Ireland which I um, had to be a little bit discreet about <laughs> about that, um, but um, that's another story. We'll hear about that perhaps. And then uh, at the the courtesy flag, which if you're if you're from um, from another country, it's it's customary to to hang in the um, in the in the rigging. So from the from the cross trees, I hung the Irish trickler, and it's a measure. Actually, this one. Yeah, it's still got the sort of rags of, of, of the weather that I had up, up, up the West Coast. Okay, so that's familiar. The third flag, I think, um, well, actually, if any of you know what this is, just keep, keep quiet and halfway through, I'll, I'll ask you if you if are familiar with it or you've guessed what it is. But here it is. Okay, so that is uh, another flag I had with me on board. Okay, so we'll just leave that there. Um, to see if, um, to wait for the answer. Um, so the story begins in the, in the early 1990s. I was in my early 30s. I was just sort of cutting my teeth as a writer, really. And my aunt and uncle uh, had just moved up. They'd been farmers in Essex. They'd moved up to the north of Scotland um, on the river Oikul. And I uh, spent a few summers there writing a couple of books. And... Um, exploring those, the, the highlands around there with my, with my aunt, who was a great walker. And in particular, we explored those peaks. Anyone who knows the northwest, um, just north of Alipal, the northwest highlands, will know that it, those extraordinary peaks of Swilvern, Quinag, Benmore, which sort of stick, stick out of a flattish moor. They're these, these, these sculptural peaks. Anyway, all of them give a view of the same thing, which is which is the western waters between between the, the mainland and the and the, um, the Hebrides of the Minch, and in the foreground the Summerals. So, first image, please. So this is um, this is the image as I I remember it, and very often we would be um, coming up over a, a ridge or onto a peak, one of those peaks, and it be it would be the late afternoon. Um, with a light on the minch um, like this, looking some, somewhat like molten metal, I think, with the summer owls, this extraordinary archipelago, um, just, just floating, floating there. We became sort of rather enamoured with these islands and, and looked into visiting them. Um, and there was a boat, I think, that went out of Alapool, but 
things being what they were, we never quite got round to it, and our lives were sort of busy, and it, we didn't do it. So this was the image that, that remained with me um, when, I, when I came back to Cornwall. Um, and it was an image of, of something that was sort of longed for but never quite reached and gave me the title of, of, of the book and the destination for this particular journey. Um, and I think, I, I think the, the title itself has a lot to do with it, the summer hours, which sort of suggest I did childhood holidays and all those sort of fun-filled summers of, of, of the distant past. Um, but for me, it was also the context. Um, I was in my 30s trying to make it as a writer, trying to sort of cobble together some sort of manuscript which would, which would make sense. And um, it was all wrapped up with exploring those, those mountains with my aunt. And so the landscape and the, um, you know, the, the landscape and the time itself, the intensity of those years, were sort of wrapped up, those bald peaks, the sculptural peaks, and these islands scattered on the waters of the Minch. And we all have such images, such places. They're places that might be old family houses, perhaps from our childhood, places we've visited during our formative years, once or twice, or even not at all. Um, they're places that, that gather to them the residue of the passing years, um, embellished by the imagination. And I believe that it's, it's just these places that have an extraordinary capacity to shape our lives, um, to make us sort of make the decisions where we are, what we do, and what, what, what's of value to us. Um, not just for individuals, but I think for whole communities and, and, and nations also, that, that particular landscape features and things attach to themselves ideas of, of, of belonging and, and identity. Um, and so for me personally, the summer hours and that time in the Northwest Highlands were all gathered together in, in this, this one image, if you like, of, of the summer hours. So the, the 1990s went past for me. I was in Cornwall most of the time. I used to travel in the summer to the Middle East, the Soviet Union, doing various books about that. Um, and then one uh, one September it was actually at the end of 1999 I got a call from my aunt up in Sutherland on the Oakland she said she'd been walking all summer on these peaks and things and, and that weekend she was going to climb Benmore Ascent which is the one big mountain it's the one one row in that in that region and I'd been up it with her son actually once and we talked about the routes and everything anyway she went up and um, she 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 never came back she she died she fell off the mountain, having been up there, um, got up to the peak and, and she fell and, and died. And so for me, the summer hours took on an added significance, um, something that was driven by the power of grief. And in a way, came to embody all those things that we, those, that strange sort of compelling idea that we have that we're trying to recreate, trying to recover the places and the people that are dear to us that we've lost over the years. So for me, it was, it, it was the summer hours. Most of my writing life has been about, now I look back at it, over, um, over the years, it's been about the sort of the juxtaposition of very abstract ideas, emotional ideas, and the physical shape of the landscape. Um, and there's a very sort of interesting juxtaposition, I think, bet bet between, these, between these two. There's a sort of typology, if you like, that, that hills um, in sort of folk tradition are the place of heroes and, and sort of battle heroes. Arthurian tradition came from hills and mountains. Um, 
other places like caves and lakes have a particular capacity to draw stories to them, but nowhere more so than, than islands. Um, and they have, as they, many myths of origins around the world involve islands um, in, in a sort of big ocean. That's where we came from. And the day-to-day the -day currency of high-end tourism is always about deserted islands and islands with perfect things on them. And so they have that, that, that extraordinary mythical power on us, I think. So much so that in a lot of instances, there's a tradition that, that it's not just stories, sort of mythical stories that are attached to them, but the whole islands are made up themselves. Um, and the Atlantic, in particular, has a long tradition of, of attracting these sort of completely made-up islands. This is, this is Toscanelli's uh, chart of 1474. Um, and it's one of the charts that Columbus took, took with him and, and, and very much represents the Atlantic as it was perceived at that time. And Columbus, of course, he never meant to discover America at all because it, he didn't know it was there. What he thought was there was with all these islands. And you can see America sort of superimposed, tinted on, on, on the island. But um, right in the middle, for instance, there's this island called Antilia. And Antilia is, is, is no island. It's, it's a story that when the Moors arrived in Spain, seven bishops took their congregations and their, um, out into the Atlantic and found this, this island of Antilia and, and, reps, and found, founded seven cities. And a lot of ships went, were going out to sort of try and find Antilia. Um, yeah. And the tradition continued. This, is some, this, this comes from the St. Brendan story where he, he, he landed on an island and lit a fire and turned out to be a big fish or whale or whatever it was. Um, but, it, but you can see here, so the island of St. Brendan again appears on charts. Um, the Fortunate Islands down to the, um, down to the left. And nowhere was more persistent than, than the island of, of High Brazil. So, You've got it off here, off the, off the west coast of Ireland, Brazil, High Brazil, O Brazil, We Brazil. It, it had different names. But for about 500 years, um, right up until the middle of the 19th century, you find this island in various places in the Atlantic. Um, and all sorts of people went looking for it. The, the Spanish ambassador at the end of the, um, in the 1490s wrote back saying that um, the Bristol people every year send out four or five caravels to go in search of the island of High Brazil. I live in, um, on the Roseland um, in the south of Cornwall in a farmhouse which used to belong to a family who, according to one 16th century manuscript, lost all their money looking for an island in the Atlantic called High Brazil. There's a, there, there's a lovely story about someone who, who an Irish, a man from Galway who landed on the island and, and found this sort of manuscript and he had an entire career as a quack doctor, because this manuscript was full of amazing cures that he got from High Brazil. <laughs> so there's a, there, is, there are these traditions of islands, and, and I think that, that in a way the, 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 the mythical islands are sort of comic as they are in a way, sort of as revealing often as, as real geography. And um, that was one of the ideas that I was exploring. I can't pretend that my own journey, my own journey up the west coasts of, of Ireland and Scotland was, was looking for these islands but it was exploring those, those ideas. So we have um, various things in place for the journey. The, the, um, the idea, islands, mythical islands, the, the way that we projected um, particular ideas and stories onto the west coast of Ireland and Scotland, but also Cornwall. I mean, there's a tremendous tradition of folk 
beliefs about the coast and about what people have believed of, of this sort of Celtic corner. Um, the Celts themselves are a sort of semi-mythical idea which is projected from the rest of Europe onto this fringe. So, so one of the things that attracted me about this coastline was exactly that, that, that the role it's played in sort of European imagination in um, being a sort of receptacle for the most sort of wonderful ideas. And sailing up and down it was, was or up it rather, was, um, w w was one way to deal with that. So we had the destination, the Samaras, just north of, uh, of Alapool. Um, and we have the route. Um, so this is, uh, I sailed from, from Cornwall up to Dingle and made my way up the west coast, um, up, to, up to the top of Ireland, across to Scotland, um, up sort of into the Hebrides and right up to, uh, to the summer hours. You can see at the top there and, and the mountains of Swilvan and Canisp and Ben Moore just, just there. Um, what we're lacking is the means. So I have, I'd always been a kind of bit of a sort of sailor, you know, a bit of a sort of a childhood sailor, um, messing around in boats. And when you get to a certain age and you sort of haven't gone beyond the horizon, it's sort of, it's an itch that needs to be scratched. And I felt that I could combine this idea that I had, uh, this trip to the Samaras, with wanting to do that, want, you know, sailing, taking a boat beyond, beyond the horizon. So I spent um, a winter or so trawling the internet and going around various yards looking for a boat. Um, and in Sulcombe, I found this boat, Zambica, 31-foot um, sloop, um, built in 1967. My grandfather, who taught me to sail, ha was a very traditional sailor, and he would only, well, those, those days there were any wooden boats, but boats had to be wooden. If he, if he had a boat, he, he took the engine out, and so we learned to sail without engines and things. I, did, I kept the engine in this one. Um, but in a way, sort of wooden boats are a, a bit of a, a sort of perverse <laughs> pleasure. There's, there was a, someone in the sailing club down in St. Moore's told me a, a nice adage. He said, um, he said, if you don't like someone, um, you leave them a boat in your will. <laughs> but if you really don't like them, leave them a wooden boat. <laughs> Because they, they are they're, they're, they're trouble. But for me, that it was it was tied up with the idea of what boats sound like, what they smell like, and the way they this particular sort of hull design sort of works in, in a sea. Anyone got any ideas about this, by the way? No. This is um, this is the, the the flag of the Buchanan Owners Association. That Alan Buchanan was the, the designer of this boat, and um, one of a generation of people who came out of the war having. Um, design planes and things, and he went into to, to leisure boats. Um, and he was a brilliant designer, but he, he loved his cups of tea. So he was famous for, for always having a cup of tea. tea. He died at the age of 92, about five or six years ago. Um, so that, I'm, you're, you're, as an owner, you're, in, you're in, entitled to. Um, but the, the weak link in all this, this plan that I, I'd had was, was the sailor himself. Okay, so I done a lot of sailing, but in other people's boats. Um, skippering a boat is a very different thing than, than sailing as I always had done in other people's boats. It's lovely, it's lovely sailing on other people's boats. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pay the bills. You don't have to think, okay, where is the next port? You know, what's going to break next? Um, and I'd had, when I left for Ireland, I'd, I'd, the furthest I'd been on my own in a boat was, was the Helford River, um, which is only about five miles across. Them. Um, but, it, but you know, sitting in, the, I've, I've got a sort of little shed where I, where I work and I spent the winter with maps and 
charts and all this sort of things. And of course, you know, with nice, less warm shed and maps and things, you, all sorts of things become possible, okay? But it was not, um, it was not always that easy. Um, thanks. So I found, um, my original plan was, to, was actually to, to sail uh, up, the, up the Irish Sea, up the East Coast. There was a friend of mine, a very experienced sailor, who, who said, look, if you're going to sail to Scotland, make sure you go up the Irish Sea. Don't, for God's sake, go up the West Coast, because <laughs> it's just hell. He, he, he'd sail all over the world. He put his nose around um, Kerry Head or somewhere, was met these huge swells and said, OK, I'm turning back and going back. No. So I thought, OK, I'll start up at Dingle and then come back down, down the south coast and up the Irish Sea. Um, so I, I started at Dingle um, and got a friend from Falmouth to, to come with me. All, all, it was, it was mid-April and lots of people I asked said, no, we won't possibly come with you across the, across the um, Celtic Sea in, in, in April. Um, but Ian was up for it, who was, who was also a professional skipper. So I badgered him for two days. It was a three-day, two-night, three-day trip. And I just thought, OK, I'll just, just download all his, all his expertise and then I'll be, I'll be fine. Um, anyway, he, he came with me as far as Dingle and I didn't actually, actually quite know what happened, but I decided that I, I would go up the West Coast when I was in Dingle. And I, I'm really glad in a way, I'm glad now that I did. That, you know, lots of times I wasn't glad at the time, but, but because that's, that's where the story was, that's where the, the things happened, that's where all, all, the, all the material, all the excitement, all the adventures and, and the people, the wonderful people I met happened. So, so I went for it and Ian, Ian, I left, I watched him go rather sort of anxiously going back to Cornwall and he, he left me with three bit, bits of advice. He said, um, be patient. He said, you know, a good sailor, or uh, sorry, a, 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 you always have good wins if you wait. He said... The hardest thing is throwing off the lines, leaving port. That's, that's the most difficult thing. And the third thing he said was that you can never have too much kitchen roll on a, on a boat. <laughs> and um, funny enough, he was right about all three things. They were very, they were, they were very useful. Um, yeah. So this is, yeah, this is arriving off the Irish coast after, after, after a couple of days, um, not knowing quite what I'd, I'd take, taken on. Um, I spent a couple of weeks in... Um, in Dingle. Sorry, this is, yeah, dolphins. We had dolphins. I had dolphins the whole way, actually. I mean, there was very rarely a day I was out at sea when dolphins wouldn't come. Um, and this is a sort of, you know, a hero pit with Skellig Michael, the great monastic outpost of, of European Christendom, on the skyline. And these four sort of synchronized swimmers of, of Sethford coming up. Anyway, that was, it was a good omen. Generally, dolphins are meant to be a, a good omen, and I, I took them as such. Um, thanks. Okay, so, um, so I, I, Ian was absolutely right. The hardest thing was throwing off the line. So after he left, somehow two weeks went past <laughs> before I threw off the line. But actually, um, Dingle has 52 pubs in it and a, and a poet in every one. And, um, and also the, the, whole, the whole Dingle Peninsula is full of wonderful people and wonderful stories. And so I, I, I spent my time looking into that and deferring the day when I had to throw off the lines and, and, and head off. Anyway, it came and um, I went into the Blasket Sound uh, and this is looking across to the Blasket Island. Now, anyone who's been through the Irish system of schools will hear the name Blasket with the, the same horror that my generation have when they hear the name Kennedy's Latin Primer. <laughs> One or two people <laughs> that, that's, that, that, that's familiar with. So, so 
the Blasket Islands um, was where this a tradition of, 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 of memoirs in Irish developed. Very few people there, but these extraordinary books. They, they're, they're actually rather wonderful, but written in a particular Irish and a particular sort of storytelling tradition. And they're used in their Irish schools to teach, to teach Irish. Um, and they're wonderful. And, and the Blasket community was a sort of survivor of that oral tradition. And so a lot of the books in, in English translation have that lovely sort of fluent, comic, idiomatic uh, English which comes out of the Irish. And it all came from this community. Um, so the, this, this was the 1920s and 1930s, um, towards the end of the, end of, of, of the Blasket community. Um, just 22 households. And out of that came, I mean, there were six or seven classic memoirs to come out of, out of this tiny community. Um, and this is the ruins of, uh, of, of Thomas O'Croen's house. He wrote Antoilenach, the islandman, which, which kicked the whole thing off. Um, and he lived, he lived in, a, in this tiny, tiny um, cottage. Actually, the interesting thing about this, is if you yeah, go on, is, is that these, these rocks on the beach are actually seals. There's a huge seal community. And I didn't, didn't realise until I sort of looked at this picture that that's, that's, that's what they were. And I thought they were just rocks. Um, yeah. And this is Thomas Crone with... I, I, this is crying out for a, a, a caption of some sort, I think, this picture. So there's, there's Robin Flower, who... who um, was a, worked at the British Museum and was the keeper of Irish manuscripts at the, at the British Museum. And he, he fell in love with the, the, the Dingle Peninsula and with the Blask community. And it was him that encouraged Thomas to, to write his, 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 the first memoir, um, which, he, which Robin then translated into, into English. But it was just that time of, of um, uh, the sort of re-emergence of Irish identity when the Irish language and what was distinct from the sort of English um, occupation of, of a thousand years was, was being celebrated and this community um, on an island sort of represented all that had sort of been, been lost over the years and was trying to be sort of re-established and that's, that's the important of Alaska and it still has that, 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 that feeling about it. So this was later on the same day, um, taken by a friend of mine, an artist um, fr from the coast and she, she, she took it. It very much sums up that first day of single-handed sailing for me, up the Blasket Sand, um, a tiny, tiny little boat in this kind of huge seascape. Um, and that's very much how it felt. But it was a beautiful day. It was a, there was a lovely easterly breeze going up Blasket Sand, which is a bit of a challenge navigationally, but, um, but I managed to get through it. And sail, uh, and, and sail up round towards um, Brandon Bay. So this is Mount Brandon. And this is the last picture I took because the wind freshened from the east, which is the direction I was going. And it, it freshened to 20 knots, 25, 30, 35 knots on the nose, having to beat, beat into it. And I didn't have a clue. I mean, all my stuff was all over there. So if, you know, my oilskins were down below. The chart was down. The, my um, chart plotter wasn't really working that well. There was a sort of pilot book that, that was down below somewhere. Anyway, I couldn't leave the helm myself. Uh, um, steering thing wouldn't work in that sort of wind. So I was stuck on the helm for like six hours um, going into this. Um, and it was a sort of introduction to single-handed sailing um, where things always always go, ro go wrong. But somehow it kind of works out in the end, usually. Um, so the next few weeks, I've, I worked my way north from, uh, you can see Dingle here, Phoenix. I, I went into Phoenix and then um, 
up this coast, I, I went into Kilrush uh, on this extraordinary sort of waterway, inland waterway that goes right into Ireland and miles and miles of it, the Shannon, um, and then round Loop Head and up to um, the Aran Islands, which anyone who knows the Galway will, will, will probably be familiar with the Aran Islands. Um, thanks. Uh, this is an 11th century te temple to um, sort of Venum, uh, and the Aran Islands were known as Aran and Eve, the, the sainted islands. They're a place of, of, like so many of the islands up here, of monastic communities and, and a sainted place. Later on, they became, again, like the Blaskets, but in a different way. They came to sort of embody um, Irish identity and Irishness. They're, they're still, I mean, Inishman, the, small, the, the middle of the island, is, is still a very, very um, sort of remote Irish-speaking community. Um, this is, this is Inishmore, the big island, Aran. Um, and there's one particular um, archaeological feature which, which features on a lot, of, a lot of, well, archaeological books. And it's, it's at Dunangus, again, this sort of semicircular to a, a double ring of, uh, of walls and this extraordinary cliff. It's, supposed, it's called a hill fort, a ring fort. Um, but these, these places never are purely defensive, I think. And, and when you look at the edge, just this, this extraordinary edge, and you feel that that's sort of what it was, what it was celebrating, um, or celebrating, or fearing, or, or whatever. Um, but there was a there was a moment in 1857, quite a sort of seminal moment in the emergence of of, of sort of Irish consciousness and Irish nationalism, where Sir William Wilde, Oscar Wilde's father, took a party of of, of scholars and linguists and diplomats, quite an expedition from Dublin out to Galway and then out for a few days out to the Aran Islands. And it, it culminated in this, this fantastic banquet in, in just here in, in Dunangus. And everyone stood up and made speeches and, in Irish and started dancing and drinking. It was all sort of wonderful. While actually the, the islanders themselves sat around those walls watching these people, sort of thinking what, what's going on. Um, but William Wilde stood up and he said, um, he said, looking out you know, into the Atlantic, we can imagine a sentinel a thousand years ago looking out towards America that we now know is there and imagining himself to see high Brazil out in, out in the water. And even so, I, 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 I talked to someone, who, a fisherman, who said that he'd seen high Brazil out there a couple of times himself when he was, when he was fishing. So, there's, again, there's that lovely sort of sense was he was he just you know was he just taking the piss from me I don't know but 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 it was sort of it was sort of that that, uh, that ambiguity um, so uh, moving north again this is this is from Inish Boffing looking south very much the sort of seascape which is familiar off the west coast of Ireland these lovely islands most of them uninhabited rocks known as breakers because off the at, at low water the, the, the water breaks over them and at high water you see nothing um, and you had to be a bit careful of them. Um, Inishboffin, which interestingly, I mean, a lot of these islands, uh, like Aran and Blasket, were sort of mythical islands in the sense that they'd sort of captured to them ideas and, 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 and imaginative things to them. Um, and then there were the sort of completely made up islands. Inishboffin is both. So it exists, obviously, but in, uh, in traditional sort of Irish folklore, it, 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 it used to hover around on the horizon and if you tried to get there, it would disappear or, or, or go into a fog bank. And so for forever, really, people who tried to get there, they couldn't. One day, a couple of fishermen managed to get there. Um, and they saw 
they saw a woman beating a, a white cow and driving her along, uh, driving along the, um, the road there. And they called her up, and instantly they all turned to stone. Anyway, that's the, that's the story goes. And, and, and the island Inish Boffin means island Inish of the, of the white cow. Boffin is, is white, white cow. So Inish Boffin has that, that sort of dual identity um, of these ideas. Also, it was very good. Um, Anchorage, the best, it was the best harbour really along the whole, the whole coast. And the pattern of my, my trip was established by now where, where there'd be just a, a rhythm, a routine of gales coming through. Um, so you see these lows coming across, gales, you make sure you'd be sitting there. Then, then they go through, there'd be a, a day perhaps of, of sort of decent weather um, when you'd skittle up the coast and, and get to the next harbour and sit out the next gale. Um, but the good thing for me was it enabled me to sort of explore the communities and get to know people, get to follow up stories. So from Inish Boffin, I heard this um, about Omi Island, which is in fact only an island at, at, um, at, at high water. You can walk across at low water. Um, and there was just one man that lived there. This man, Pascal Whelan. And it's interesting, he had an extraordinary story himself. So he was a stunt, he'd been a stuntman. Um, he'd been brought up on this island as a child, went to Dublin, and then became a, um, went, went to, with 10 shillings, went to Australia as a builder. And he found he was very good at sort of jumping off things and, and rolling around and became a stuntman. And really, you know, he worked with James Bond films and, um, and, and, and sort of in Hollywood. And then he took a stunt show around, around the world. And then back in Ireland, he was doing a stunt show, and his 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 partner died, had an accident, while they were performing, and died in his arms. And he said, "I'm giving up. I'm stopping." And he went back to Omi Island, where he spent his childhood. By then, it was deserted, um, and he lived in a, a caravan there um, with his dog. And he he went fishing. And his, his, he had three boats. They'd all been destroyed the previous winter in a storm. Um, and he was, he was the most wonderful man. He died just after, a year after I'd, I, I was visiting him. But it's, it's sort of something about, the, he, he came back, he, the caravan was in the 50 yards of the house that he'd been brought up in. Um, and somehow the, the way that these islands sort of draw people in, it had drawn him back like a sort of returning bird. Yeah. Um, so I headed on north up, up, the, up the coast, again, hopping into the, the, the island harbours as I could. Um, this is uh, Inish Turk, population of 58. Um, and then on to, uh, to, um, to Clare Island, a little further north, with about 150, 200 people on it. Um, and then, then round Achelhead, uh, in some weather, to Inish Keel, which has a population of, of, of none at all. <laughs> Used to, they all left. Actually, there was a, there. Were, I mean, like um, like Blasket, um, they'd left in the in in the fifties. Um, no, sorry, it's the thirties. That's right. There was there was one night when uh, just a sudden storm in October hit the whole coast, and down at Inishboffin, ten ten fishermen were killed, and in the community here, I think about eight eight died. But it was enough to tip the balance, and they all went went ashore. And this is the abandoned communities it now is. Um, interestingly, T.H. White, who, run, who wrote those lovely Arthurian books, who was a conscientious objector, and he spent the war in the west coast of Ireland, and he became fascinated by 
um, by the Inishkeen Islands, in particular this, this, this stone called the Nevog, which was supposed to be worshipped by the community. And during the 19th century, they'd sent lots of priests to try and rid them of this pagan belief. And they all came to quite a sticky end, those priests, for one, for one reason or another. Um, and anyway, he, so T.H. White went, on the, um, went to hunt for these things. He went to Dublin, interviewed lots of people. He, he never found it. Um, yeah. This is, yeah, this is the, 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 the Northern Ireland. In fact, when I was there, I was sort of wandering around, and um, suddenly this dog came barking at my heels. And, um, and someone called out, and out of one of these huts came this, this, this man from, from Dublin. He was, a, he was a Buddhist, and he spent the whole winter there. Um, he's still there, I think. And um, his, his family had helped the, the community when they came ashore. They're called Sweeney, and, they, and, helped them, and they'd given him the schoolhouse, and he'd, he'd gone on retreat there for the, for the winter. And it was just, yeah, just one of those surprises that, that these places throw up. Okay, so up, yeah, so now, yeah, you can, the map here, Clare Island, the Inish Keys, um, then across Donegal Bay to, to Inish Keel, and um, it, um, Greencastle. So I, I crossed from Greencastle to Scotland, um, which was quite, a, I mean, I, th I sort of thought the idea of crossing two, yeah, from one country to, to the next was quite daunting, but in fact, it's not two countries. It's, it's really the, the west coast of Ireland, the more you spend there, and the west coast of Scotland, they're really linguistically, ethnically, historically, even geologically, they're, they're the same. Um, and traditionally, the, the, it was the idea the Scotty and Irish tribe went across to Scotland, and then it became Scotland, and, and the links are from there. But actually, I think the traffic went both ways. And there's an interesting genetic um, marker that they found, M222, I think, which um, links communities from, from here and from southwest Scotland back to a single person, a single man, I think it is, on the initial show and right up at, at, at Malin Head, all descended from the same, the same person. But this, this gene you can find all over that area. So it's, sort of it, it's a sort of genetic link for many other sort of cultural links. Um, so, yeah, across to Scotland um, from... Uh, Port Ellen up to Durid, which is a lovely, huge island, population about 200, but it's, it's sort of 30 miles long. Um, and I spent a, spent a night there in, um, on Loch Tarbert um, with these wonderful scaries. Had quite good weather there. Um, and then worked, worked my way north around Ardnamurchan Point. Um, and up to the, when, when you cross, anyone who knows the west coast, west, western isles, or the west coast of Scotland, when you go around Ardnamurchan Point and north, you get to a sort of whole different, it's much more remote, much more interesting in a way, um, and a bit trickier. You find, find yes, less boats. But here, this is, this is Canna, the Isle of Canna, which is one of the most interesting islands for, for lots of reasons on, um, in the Inner Hebrides. Um, it's very fertile for a start. A lot of the, 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 the land there is terrible. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's become a receptacle for... Gaelic studies. There was a lovely couple there, Margaret Faye Shaw and John Long Campbell, who spent their entire life recording Gaelic song, particularly, and, and folk stories and gathering it all together in, um, in, in, in Canna House. We'll just go on to the next slide. This is, this, these are the two sides. As, again, you know anyone knows, well, Cornwall, all the West Coast, knows that it's either pouring rain or it's this, and you get this, these sort of glorious moments and interludes between the storms. 
This is that's that's rum in the distance. Um, but Canna House, oh sorry, this is this this is a measure. There's about 15 people that live on on Canna. Um, this is their post office. Um, the school, I think there are four people. Oh no, the family actually that, that had the four children left, so the school's in abeyance at the moment. But it's really, really on a knife edge, um, like so many of the communities there. Um, but the asset it has is, is Canna House, and in Canna House is the, is the archive of this, um, of, of John Long Campbell and, and Margaret Shaw. Um, she particularly, she was an American, uh, this is her on the right, and she, she was a, um, she wanted to be a pianist, um, and was in New York and worked at Carnegie Hall and things, and um, then she, at the age of 20 she was told that she, she had an infection in her hand and she could never play professional piano again so she's the doctor said what are you going to do and she said I'm going to go to the um the Hebrides of Scotland I'm going to learn Gaelic and I'm going to collect song and that's exactly what she did she went to a black house in, on South Uist lived with a, um, two sisters the McRae sisters learned Gaelic um collected their song as a musician she 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 managed to, to, to transcribe the songs and the folklore and met her husband um, John Long Campbell, who had exactly the same interests, and they, they keep this archive in Canna House, and they wanted to become a sort of learning centre, but it hit, it hit problems, and it may or may not happen. Um, but again, it's this, this, this idea of, a, um, of the island sort of gathering all these things that are lost. I mean, there's a sort of twilight sense to a lot of these communities there, and this, this Escalonia hedge is how you approach Canna House, and it's almost as if you, you sort of step into this, one of these old... Irish stories where you, 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 you go through a portal and go back 300 years and time has no, no object, and, and Canna House is, is like that. So the summer was sort of beginning to, to get a bit thin, late August, and um, the nights were getting a bit shorter. I benefited a lot from the long nights, being able to navigate and, and, and not do any night sailing on my own, but they were beginning to get shorter. This is looking up the sound of Rasse with sky on on the left, and that sort of chill in the sky, which made me feel a little bit um, wary. And also, I still had 100 miles to go, and the weather was getting, getting more and more intense. Um, so I sort of put my skates on a bit, went up to the sky, um, tried for the somewhere else uh, round um, the, uh, the Ruba Head, um, was hit by a northeasterly gale, exactly the direction I wanted to go in, Came back, spent two days in Loch U, um, in the gale. Couldn't couldn't move my anchor. I didn't have a, a capstan. Electric cap a lot of boats have electric capstan. Now I, I just had to hold it up. So I had to wait for the, the wind to go before I could pull the anchor up. And um, and then on the last day, um, set out for the summer hours. And the summer hours have been a part of my life, as I've tried to explain for for <coughs> 20, 20 years or so. And um, a lot of what I done during a journey was a sort of endeavor to, to, to get there and in a way a lot of these places when you get there it's sort of a little bit disappointing so I thought I'd leave the the just Zambika doing what she'd been doing for, for hundreds of miles cleaving the water between us and the summer hours still an object of um, destination rather than the rifle so thank you thank you Um, I'd be very happy to 
answer any questions or any thoughts or anything that you'd like to raise. Uh, yes, at the back there. Thank you. Could you just wait for the mic so it goes over the, uh, the podcast things? You, you, uh, you avoided night sales, which sounds very sensible. <laughs> Uh, but what was your hairiest moment? <laughs> and also, if you were going to do the trip again, what would you do differently? <laughs> okay, well, I, well the first, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a question I often get asked. I, I don't know, I mean, there, was, there, was, there were many. Um, the night set, one, there, was, there was a place in, uh, in Donegal, that's, that's right, where my engine, I had engine trouble the whole way. Um, not so much with the engine itself, but the, the, the shaft that went out through the stern was, was leaked the whole time and, and when it was the water sort of poured in the pumps again and I tried to get it fixed and I did, did fix it in occasions and, and I, for some time it worked and then in this port in Donegal Burton port I looked I looked and I did inspect the stern and saw it was pouring in again um, and I got a new bolt and put it I mean I'm not practical at all but I kind of had to be um, and put a bolt back and and used a couple of matchsticks to get purchase on it because the wood had completely gone and um, so I put it back in there and, uh, and, and set off, and I, I was going round to, um, to a very tricky little, little estuary, um, and I had a friend who was, who was a sailor at the, at the top end, he said, look, I'll, I'll bring you in. He said, you know, wait out there, because you won't possibly get in you know, on your own. Um, so I said, fine, I, I sailed round there, and um, there was a gale forecast. It, it was decent weather, but there was a gale forecast that night, a force nine sort of coming in, so I was quite anxious to get in. And also slightly aware that when the engine was going, this, 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 this bracket was just on. And if it, if it come out, it just spun around and made a hole in the stern, and that would have been it. Like, like all those things with boats, it's very quickly, you'll, if you project it, you end up on the bottom, on the rocks, just in deep trouble. Um, so I was sort of thinking that. And it was getting a bit darker, and there was no sign of him, couldn't fo no answer from his phone, getting darker. And, um, and the lights, these, these nav lights came on in, in the estuary, and at the same time, a few dolphins came up around me, and somehow I relaxed with them around and thought, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do it because there's these port and starboard lights, you just follow them in, like that. So I, I, I sort of nose, nosed in there. It was pretty much dark by then, and then suddenly this tiny little boat out of the blue just came up, and this, this friend of mine, this sailor, just hopped, hopped off it. No, there were no lights on his boat, he hopped off it onto mine. I said, well, it's nice to see you, but I'm, I, I'm all right, you know, I'm okay. And he said, he said no, you're not. He said, <laughs> no, you're not. He said, those lights, they don't mean anything. You know, they're just, they're just, they're just, just put there. Um, you know, there's banks inside this one. There's rocks here, there's rocks here, there's rocks here. So I sort of feel, I mean, that was just one of 100 moments of anxiety. But interestingly, Ian was right in the sense that the, 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 the most anxious time was always before I left. And I think the worst possible thing was, was when I used to go and get supplies from a supermarket or something and was walking back preparing to leave and thinking should I go should I not go and just that anxiety and then once you're or once you're once you're going actually you kind of deal with everything once you're at sea you, you sort of deal with it but it's that moments that you have the choice not to go that are the most difficult um so your second your, the second thing what would I do differently I think I get a bit more practice, and actually, by the end of it, I'd had a bit more practice. And I, th I think that I mean that, that was a thing. I mean, it was, it was hopelessly naive, but kind of, you know, that's the way things are sometimes. And I, there were there are places that I think, with a little more confidence, I would have got to, and times when I would have gone out and taken, you know, with a bit more confidence. I was very cautious, um, and perhaps I would have been less so, and I could have got to some some more places. So, that's that's probably the main thing. 
Um, and I'd also had fixed the stern gland in the, in the engine. <laughs> weeping stern, exactly. And a weeping skipper as well. It was the same, same thing. Um, yes? Did, yes. Did you actually have to do it on your own? Why not take someone else? Well, that, that's a good question. Exactly. Why not? I mean, that would be sensible. <laughs> it was. I mean, it was mainly because I, I. I mean, a lot of the books I've done in the past have been travel books, and I've I've travelled to in the Middle East and Soviet Union and Ethiopia and various places, and I've always tended to travel on my own because that's the way the stories emerge. Um, when you're on your own, people feel sorry for you, apart from anything else. Um, and often they're much more hospitable. If you're sort of lone idiots, you know, in the, in the wilderness, they'll they'll ask you in, and then you meet people. If you're a couple of people, they think, well, you're you're okay. So I had that sort of. I mean, because because I was thinking not so much about the sailing, unfortunately, and more about the material and researching and the sort of early Irish literature and all these sort of lovely things, and not thinking about actually practical things, as you you were, um, and, and having this thing that actually it is like having a sort of you know a bubble around you if you're with someone else. So I felt I wanted to go on my own. And um, there, were, there were a couple of times, actually, I met a couple of people, and, and they, they came for a day or two with me. And that was great. And, and, and I dropped them off further up, up the coast. But, but I did benefit from, be, from being on my own by just by meeting people. And, and just also, you know, when you were with someone else, you had to slightly go with their problems, their things so selfishly it's, it's it's much easier you're much more free to, to sort of immerse yourself in communities and with people and um yeah but it did make my life a bit more difficult in, in, in that sense <laughs> yeah um yes wait for the mic um, it, uh, the fr oh, okay so you, you first exactly sorry she, he got to i just wondered how you got home yeah, well, I, <laughs> I left actually. I, le I left the boat up in Alapool then, and um, I, I had there, there was a friend who was with three others. They sailed it down in about five days. I had to get back to my family and had other things going on. So I, I um, having having spent months and months getting there, they just scootled down the the Irish Irish Sea, sailing at night, and were back in families after five days. So it made it made it seem a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Not that easy, but <laughs> yes. Just a sec. Um, being a very earth-based person, um, the thought of doing that is terrifying. I love the sea, and I have sailed on much smaller dinghies mm. between Southampton and the Isle of Wight when I was younger. Lots of adventures. But I'm reading Rising Ground, mm. where you are now walking. So what's your sense of it between this, which feels so much larger, because you're traveling in a boat, and you're going so much further, you're crossing the seas, yeah. your experience is entirely, whereas walking, and yet when I'm walking with you, I feel as if I'm going really long distances. <laughs> what's your feeling as you do it? That's interesting. It's, okay, so, so Rising Ground is, was a book I did before the sunrise about walking through Cornwall. And again, it was the same sort of thing about finding stories and then going to the next place. And you're right, it wasn't very far. I mean, I started at Bodmin, on Bodmin Moor, ended well, on the Isle of Scilly. You know, as we know, you can drive it in, 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 in half a day. It's interesting what you say. I mean, I, I found, you know, once you go into a place like Bodmin Moor, once you open it up to that sort of, Neolithic scale of time and, and look into it, it becomes enormous. Um, 
I didn't think of, I mean, I, there are parallels to me, um, and not in, not, in, not in the sense of, of scale, as you, as, as you mentioned. I see them both as sort of enormous in their own, their own way. Of course, being on the open sea, it is, it is much bigger. Um, yeah, I mean, I, they're, both, they're both means to an end. I mean, I, I've, I'm a great believer in the journey as being a template for all good narrative. Um, and the way that you begin and you don't quite know what's going to happen and you, move, you, you sort of transition, you change. You know, it's got all the sort of classic elements of a, of, 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 of a story. And if you walk a short distance in Cornwall or sail a big distance, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing. And really, I mean, you know, the sailing was a big thing, much more of a thing in, in this than I kind of imagined it would be because it was a means to an end. Um, but really, they're just, they're just ways of, of telling stories, of, of, of linking ideas, of sort of things that emerge from, from research, of people you talk to, and that lovely sort of fluidity of, 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 of narrative and an idea which just flows through journeys, I've, I've, I find. And whatever it is, whether it's walking or, or, or the sea, it's, it's got the same thing. This one particularly, there was a, there was a sort of really sort of strong juxtaposition between the practical elements of sailing and having to fix the boat um, or work out navigation tide tables and then this this thing which was what interested me most in a way was was the imagination and the way that that uh, Irish literature for instance has these extraordinary sort of flights of the imagination these wonderful almost crazy sort of ideas so these two things which one earthbound <laughs> as you say, and the other sort of completely ethereal and sort of magical and, and wonderful. Actually, I quite like the, the way they work together. Um, I'm not sure whether that really answered your question or whether it was a question, but, it, but, but that, that was the thought that came out of your, of, of, of your point, I think. Thank you. Um, so perhaps one, for, one more. Yes, Patrick. I would love to know what you're writing now. Okay. <laughs> We've got a couple of minutes. I would too, actually, <laughs> because I'm sort of at that stage where I've got um, various sort of elements and trying desperately to sort of squeeze them all into the, the sort of bag of, of, of the book. But basically, it's, um, it's a, in one sense, it's about metals and about the, the contribution that metals and the discovery of metals have made it to our civilization, um, and, and both now and sort of, sort of way back. And of course, with the Cornish connection with the, the great under our feet, this great sort of receptacle of, of global minerals and, and the mining tradition. Um, and sometimes, somehow I'm also trying to tie it in with those areas of Europe, which are traditionally um, mining areas, and with European mysticism, people like Jacob Boehm and William Blake, who, who all, I feel, had this sort of wonder, this sense of wonder that, that metals and the discovery of metals are a, a sort of expression of. So as you can see, it makes no sense at all at the moment. <laughs> But, but there is something there, and actually, again, the juxtaposition of things which, like mysticism at one end and, 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 and the practicalities of mining at the other end. I've been exploring mines, going down abandoned mines in the, in the west of Cornwall, um, and it's extraordinary what's there. But it all comes out of this thirst and this, not just the practical thirst, but, but, but the sort of wonder of, of rocks and minerals, which is where, as a child, that's where my introduction to the world and its wonder began. So there's, there's sort of lots of things in there. But it's a, bit, it's a bit like there's a bit here, a bit here, and it might come together at some point. Wonderful. Well, next time you come here, we'll ensure you're <laughs> sponsored by Cornish Lithium. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Will you all please join me in thanking Philip for a wonderful talk?